How are we today? Doing well? That's good. It's good to see all of you here today. Uh, last week, I was uh, had the honor and privilege of preaching at Goshen Church uh, across town. Uh, they send their blessings and their greetings to all of you. Um, I was amazed and very privileged to be able to sit with them for some time and hear their stories, everything that they've gone through in their lives that uh, they had to go through in order to get to this place here in Tucson that they're in now, um, asylum process and courts and everything. And after, uh, after that, I was able to listen to Charlie's sermon uh, last week that he brought to you on abiding uh, in, in God, in Christ. And it made me think about these stories that I had heard from the Goshen Church and also from our missions team that went to Africa, started getting some of these stories pouring in and just how insane their lives have been and what it must have been like for them to have to focus on what abiding was. And I started thinking about my own life and some of the things that are going on with families here at Grace and you all. And uh, I wanted this morning to continue in this idea of what it means to abide in God and maybe take a look at some examples from Abraham's life and also the life of the disciples and see maybe what we can learn from the way they abid abided uh, in in God in what they went through. And if you're a Wildcat fan like I am, a big Wildcat fan like I am, you got a lesson last night in what maybe abiding in God and having faith through hard times can look like. That was just a, that was a tough game to watch. Really hard game to watch. The Lady Cats won though, so they handled business. But for some reason, when we lose to that team north of us, uh, I just, I don't know. I can't, I, can't, uh, I can't handle that so much. So uh, if you want to, you have your Bibles with you, you can go ahead and turn to Genesis chapter 22. I'll start reading from there um, in a moment. Uh, if you don't have Bibles, you can look at your tablets or your phones and go to mygrace.church and uh, follow along from there. I picked this uh, particular story of Abraham and Isaac because it's one of the most famous stories. I think it's also one of the most difficult ones for us today to kind of wrap our minds around what it was that God was actually asking Abraham to do. I believe that Abraham's whole life is a really good example of what it means to abide in Christ. I believe that we can really take a lesson from him and also from the disciples in the boat in the storm about what it can look like to respond to God with anxiety, what it can look to respond to God with assurance, and also what it looks to respond to God with our actions. I definitely want to touch on those aspects as we go through the story today, but I want you all to do the best you can to try and internalize what it is that we're learning about today. I want you to individually apply it to what it is your storm might look like right now. The storms that you have gone through in your life. Think about the storms that maybe you will go through in your life. And how will you respond? Will you easily respond, here I am, the way that we see that Abraham consistently did in his life? Will you be ready and willing to recognize that Jesus is in the boat with you, even when you think that maybe he isn't? Our big idea, uh, big idea for today is that abiding in Christ means always being willing to answer, here I am, while never letting go 
of knowing that God has never left. Abiding in Christ means always being willing to answer, here I am, while never letting go of knowing that God has never left. So I'll go ahead and read uh, Genesis 22, and then we'll kind of dissect it after that. Sometime later, God tested Abraham's faith. Abraham, God called. Yes, he replied. Here I am. Take your son, your only son, yes, Isaac, whom you love so much, and go to the land of Moriah. Go and sacrifice him as a burnt offering on one of the mountains, which I will show you. The next morning, Abraham got up early. He saddled his donkey, took two of his servants with him, along with his son Isaac. Then he chopped wood for a fire for a burnt offering and set out for the place God had told him about. On the third day of their journey, Abraham looked up and saw the place in this distance. Stay here with the donkey, Abraham told the servants. The boy and I will travel a little farther. We will worship there, and then we will come right back. So Abraham placed the wood for the burnt offering on Isaac's shoulders, while he himself carried fire and the knife. As the two of them walked on together, Isaac turned to Abraham and said, Father, yes, my son, we have the fire and the wood, but where's the sheep for the burnt offering? God will provide a sheep for the burnt offering, my son. Abraham answered, and they both walked on together. When they arrived at the place where God had told them to go, Abraham built an altar, arranged the wood on it, and then he tied his son Isaac and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. And Abraham picked up the knife to kill his son for a sacrifice. At that moment, the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven, Abraham, Abraham. Yes, Abraham replied, here I am. Don't lay a hand on the boy. Don't hurt him in any way, for now I know that you truly fear God. You have not withheld me from me, even your son, your only son. Then Abraham looked up and saw a ram caught by its horns in a thicket. So he took the ram, sacrificed it as burnt offering, in place of his son. Abraham named the place Yahweh Yirai, which means the Lord will provide. To this day, people still use that name as a proverb. On the mountain, the Lord it will be provided. Father God, I just uh, ask that the meditation of my mind and my heart, uh, the words that come from my mouth today, seek only to deliver what it is that you would have for us in this place at this time. Amen. I think the first thing that might be helpful to realize is between chapter 21 in Genesis and chapter 22 where this story is picking up, it's probably been about 20 years between the two chapters. We last saw Abraham in a tent by the well of Beersheba with his son Isaac. Abraham built an altar in the name of the everlasting, unchangeable God and for, for because of the 20 years of blessings and happiness. Isaac has been the delight of his parents' hearts. True to his own name, he has brought happiness to his family, and the future of his family has been rested on his shoulders. One can imagine how the life of this family centers around this one boy. Abraham must have responded to this initial ask of God with some anxiety. Things were going so great in his life. He had responded to everything God had asked him to do, stayed faithful when the best of us probably wouldn't have remained faithful. And now God asks, in the first couple of verses, to take his son, head up to the hills, and sacrifice him. 
Can you relate to an ask of God like this? After Abraham has had uh, or has been asked to do, after all of his faithfulness, after God showing up in big, memorable ways, he got he has to throw this other wrench in it. God seemingly couldn't have just left well enough alone. I'm sure he could hardly believe his ears. Take your son, go up to the mountain that I'm going to show you, and burn him. This was a huge blow to Abraham. Had to have been. How anxious would you have been? What kind of a trial was God asking Abraham? Was this a test to see Abraham's confidence maybe in Isaac's faith? Or maybe was this a test of Abraham's faith in God? What I believe is that this was really just a true test of Abraham's heart. God wanted to see if Abraham really believed that one most important command, to love God with all your heart, all your soul, and all your mind. But how could God be asking this of him? In my life, it's happened to me more times than I'd like to admit, time and time again, from begging and pleading God to show me some justification, some reason for the trajectory that my life was on, to God asking me for way more than I thought that I could ever sacrifice, that I'd ever be willing to sacrifice. I think it's okay to call God a jealous God. God wants what he feels he deserves. And that's to be number one in every single one of our hearts. Really, number one. Abraham's heart must have been really scared. Abraham must have been thinking about all the promises that God had made to him up until this point. And if he has to see this through, what would those promises mean? Abraham must have been wondering, I, I thought this was going to, that my son's descendants were going to be as numerous as the stars in the sky and the grains of sand on the beach. What about those promises? Whenever we find ourselves in situations like this, it's really easy for us just to want to default to why. Why is this happening? Why would God do this to me? Why would God ask this of me? And let's not even forget Sarah. What was Abraham supposed to do with Sarah? <laughs> comes back down from this trip. thought he was doing a nice father-son trip up to the mountains. And he comes back without a son. How is he going to explain that to her? After she's been walking faithfully with him for their entire life. It's when our backs are against the wall and we fail to see any logic in the circumstances, the storms, the trials, the transitions that we're going through that I really think our faith means faith when it's the only thing that we have to go on. Now, as we continue on, uh, we see how Abraham actually responds to this uh, with some assurance, some bold assurance. On the third day of their journey, Abraham looked up and saw the place in the distance. <clears throat> Stay here with the donkey, Abraham told the servants. The boy and I will travel a little farther. We will worship there, and then we'll come right back. We're going to come right back, he says. 
So Abraham placed the wood for the burnt offering on Isaac's shoulders while he himself carried the fire and the knife. As the two of them walked on together, Isaac turned to Abraham and said, Father, yes, my son, I see we got the fire and the wood, but where's the sheep for the burnt offering? God will provide a sheep for the burnt offering, son. And they both walked on together. When they arrived at the place where God had told him to go, Abraham built the altar, arranged the wood on it. Then he tied his son Isaac, laid him on the altar in the wood, picked up his knife, ready to kill his son for a sacrifice. Abraham's heart has to be torn. What is he supposed to do? Does he go against every evolutionary biology instinct in his mind to protect his son and his family by following through with what God had asked him to do? Or does he stay faithful to God because he's known God has been faithful to him? Tough decision. I can imagine it would have been really easy for Abraham just to, nope, too much. Definitely can't be an ask from God. It's easy for us to excuse ourselves from hard things, to rationalize our way out of difficult circumstances and situations we find ourselves in. We don't like disturbing questions. We don't like unsettling challenges. And when it comes right down to it, I think we honestly have a problem of personal accountability. To be able to hear the voice of God that we've been hearing our entire lives and be able to sit there and say, yes, here I am. No matter what the ask is. As I've walked through my life of faith, I've discovered that God hasn't been the least bit impressed with my hysterical outbursts and emotional rages towards him. Turns out I wasn't really able to change his mind in any of those circumstances. Our emotions in our logic, I don't think, often change what God knows is best for us. God knows that when he's calling us into something, even something difficult, it's necessary not only for our benefit to go through it, but maybe even for his own benefit and the greater plan that he has for us, but also for everyone around us, our friends, our family, our church family. So I'm really impressed with Abraham's obedience here. When he hears God tell him to offer up his son, Abraham answers with assurance to the point of tying him up, throwing him on a bundle of wood, and raising his knife. Our thoughts and good words don't mean very much if our deeds and our actions don't follow right along with them. As Abraham's ready to strike... The Bible says that at that moment, the angel of the Lord called out to him from heaven, Abraham, Abraham. Yes, Abraham replied, here I am. Don't lay a hand on the boy. Don't hurt him in any way. For now, I know that you truly fear God. You've not withheld from me even your son, your only son. Then Abraham looked up and saw a ram caught by its horns in a thicket. So he took the ram, sacrificed it as a burnt offering in place of his son. Abraham named this place, the Lord will provide. To this day, people still use that name as a proverb. 
on the mountain of the Lord, it will be provided. There's no account uh, in this story of Abraham's emotional reaction. Um, But I think we only have to put ourselves in this place to probably know exactly what it was that he felt. How his heart was torn, how he had to... uh, He probably couldn't even look Isaac in the eye on this trip, right? What was he supposed to say to him? It must have been like really awkward silence. How his heart must have broke when Isaac asked him point blankly, where's the sheep? Abraham must have done some good work through this process. We're not privy to everything that he thought and kind of worked through, but he must have done some good work. He must have been able to look back at all the promises that he knows God made and have kept and been able to look forward and know that God's never let me down before. I don't get it. I don't understand it. But there has to be a reason behind it. Abraham didn't have the benefit of an Easter like we do today in the church. He didn't have the benefit of Jesus, God incarnate, God in the flesh, walking, telling him parables and stories and life lessons to learn from. And yet he still consistently was able to say, here I am. Now the disciples did have the benefit of Jesus, did have the benefit of walking with him and hearing the parables straight from his mouth. And in our gospel account that I want to turn to today, it's going to be in Luke 8, uh, 22, a different account from the Mark verse that was read earlier. Um, And I want us to look at how the disciples responded to their own storms. Were they going to answer, here I am? How did they respond once they realized that even in the midst of the storm where they thought Jesus was sleeping, he was there the whole time and in control of everything? So I'll read those first, uh, those few verses. One day Jesus said to his disciples, let's cross to the other side of the lake. So they got into a boat and started out. As they sailed across, Jesus settled down for a nap. But soon a fierce storm came down on the lake. The boat was filling with water and they were in real danger. The disciples went and woke him up, shouting, Master, Master, we're going to drown. When Jesus woke up, he rebuked the wind and the raging waves. And suddenly the storm stopped and all was calm. Then he asked them, where is your faith? The disciples were terrified and amazed. Who is this man, they asked. When he gives a command, even the wind and the waves obey him. Losing a job is a real challenge. Moving to a new city, getting to know new people, adapt to new cultures. These aren't just perceived traumas in our lives. These are real. Dealing with transitions in our homes, our families, work lives, personal lives, have a potential of placing us in jeopardy. But we have to remember that if God brought us to it, then he's going to bring us through it. We have to remember that the storm isn't the destination, but just the pathway to the destination. Whatever storm, trial, transition you might be facing right now, it is not the destination. It's just the pathway to the destination. God has not forgotten us in the storm. We're still going somewhere. There is still divine purpose to our lives, even when it's not clear, even when we can't see through those waves. 
when we're led by God into a situation that we feel we can't handle, we have to be sure that he's going to show up and show out for us in big ways. If God presents us with a challenge that we know might be bigger than we are, then we also have to be willing to accept the tools and the resources that he's going to provide us to meet the challenges that we face. Whatever trial you're facing, whatever it may be, it has not been brought to you to master you. It's been brought to you to mature you. Whatever it is, Grace, that we are going through as a church right now in our transition, or you are going through transition-wise in your lives, it is not here to master you. It is not here to own you. It is here to prepare you and to mature you. We can miss this point in our own transition. We know where we need to go. We know what it even might look like once we arrive there. But somehow in the middle, in the midst of the transition, the storm, the waves, we can lose sight of all that, all that certainty. We can forget who we are. We can forget who's been on board the ship with us this entire time, our entire lives that have gotten us to the very point that we're at today. We can forget what God has said about us. We can forget our identity. And if we remember back to a sermon series that Pastor Dave led us through a few series ago, what is our identity? Who remembers? Go ahead. You don't have to raise your hand. You can just say it. (laughs) What's our identity? Beloved child of God, right? We can forget that in the storms. Because of this win in Abraham's life, he decided to call the place that he was supposed to sacrifice his son, God will provide. My question to you all this morning is how are we going to respond? How are you going to respond? How will we respond as a church going through the transition that we're going through? How will you respond as an individual going through whatever storms you might be facing personally in your life? And I think that question might be more relevant six months from now or a year from now when maybe we thought we'd be out of the storm. We thought that the winds and the waves might have calmed, but they haven't yet. How are you going to respond then? God's ways with us can easily make it seem as though his promises, the way that we felt life was going to go because of his promises, might never actually come. It can seem that there won't be any deliverance from the circumstances that we face. But if you press on in faith, faith, when you get to that mount, I promise you, it will be provided. If you can grasp that God has been in the boat with you this whole time, I promise you that the waves have a way of subsiding and the winds have a way of calming that will leave us all breathless, wondering what sort of God is this. That even in the midst of our struggle, in our own angers, in our own doubts, in our own frustrations with God, our own questions of God, He remained faithful to us no matter what. Change is scary. We resist it with every fiber of our beings. We love stability. We love for things to remain as they are. But the inevitable aspect of life is that it's going to change. In fact, one of the only consistent things that we can count on in life is that it's going to change. It's impossible for us to get to where it is we're going without making a transition. 
And I feel that the greater part of our success as Christians and as a church is how we're going to manage this time of transition that we've been called into. After rebuking the wind and the raging waters, Jesus asked the disciples, where is your faith? Their response is surprising. They didn't respond with accusations or excuses. They didn't say, oh, well, Jesus, I never doubted you. You know, I was, I was fine. It was Peter over there. He was freaking out the whole time. They didn't point fingers. They didn't try to act like they had doubts or fears or frustrations. Now, their recorded response was a statement that actually nourished and strengthened their faith. Who then is this, that he commands even the winds and the water and they obey him? The disciples' question in the calm after the storm expresses what Jesus has intended us to get all along. He wants us to truly understand his power and his authority and his presence in our lives. He wants us to understand how desperately God wants us to know that he's got us. He has it. We can't forget in the darkness what God has promised us in the light. We can't forget in the darkness what God has promised us in the light. He never said there wouldn't be storms. He never said there wouldn't be challenges. He never said that it wouldn't be scary sometimes, but he did say that he's got us. He did say that he will provide. Our destiny and purpose is greater than any transition, storm, or trial that we'll have to face or that we're facing now. Destiny is greater than that. I want to end by throwing the uh, big idea back up on the screen, if we could. To abide in Christ, we always need to be willing to answer, Here I am, while never letting go of knowing that God has never left us. We always need to be willing to answer, Here I am, while at the same time not letting go of the knowledge that God has never left us. Will you pray with me? Father God, I thank you for this day. Thank you for the worship that we've enjoyed. Thank you for your word. Thank you for your reminder that you've never left us. Thank you for the reminder, God, that no matter what it is that we face and whether we feel your presence there with us so strong, so literal, or we think that you're just sleeping somewhere else and you're not paying any attention and you don't care, Thank you for reminding us that you're always in the boat. Thank you for showing us through Abraham's example that even in difficult circumstances, our response needs to be, here I am. Whatever it is that you have for us. God, I just ask you to let us not forget about the community that we have. And as much as it's important to, to remember to answer, here I am, in faithfulness, because we know your promises are true, to remembering that you're in the boat with us through the storm. God, let us not forget that we have a family of people here that are going through storms of their own, storms like ours, storms that we couldn't even imagine how we'd get through if we had to go through them. Let us not forget to lean into each other in this transition period and whatever it is that we're going through. Maybe you're here today and you've never said yes to God, to Jesus, because you've had some big traumatic experience in your life, some storm that you went through, and you had no idea how God could even exist because of the things that you've had to endure in your life. 
Maybe you've been a Christian for a while and because of a storm that you're facing right now, you've wanted to turn your back on God because you just don't understand. And it's easier to pull away. It's easier to let him sleep in the boat than waking him up and asking for help. If that's you today, I want to remind you, God is there. He is not asleep. He has been in the boat with you this entire time. And he loves you. You are his beloved child. He's got you. If that's you today and you want to take a step towards either reclaiming the faith that maybe you've lost or starting out a new exciting journey in this faith, you can repeat in your hearts after me. Father God, there's a lot that's going on in my life right now that I don't understand. A lot of questions and doubts and worry. I see my friends, people that I love, going through their own struggles of question and doubt and worry, and it makes me want to question if you're even there, if you even care, if you even exist. God, I know now that you have been there. I, I can look back and I can see how even getting to where I am today had to have been because of you. God, I want to start living life your way and not my way. Please come into my heart. Forgive me of my sins. Forgive me for the fact that I've been doing things my own way and I've forgotten about you and your providence. In Jesus' name, amen.